This is Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at Toronto's University Health Network, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote, and joining us on the podcast today, Dr. Stephanie Pratza, an award-winning scientist at UHN's McEwen Stem Cell Institute. Dr. Pratza is pioneering the creation of new heart cells to restore the heart's pacemaker function. That will one day eliminate the need for electronic devices to do the job. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Pratza. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Before we get started, Stephanie, would you mind giving us a quick biology lesson, how the heart works and where the pacemaker cells fit into this story? Of course. So as we all know, the job of the heart is to pump blood through the body to supply all the other organs with oxygen and nutrients. But how does the heart actually do that? How is that pumping coordinated? There are special cells in the heart that can generate the force to pump the blood. But then if those cells would beat to their own rhythm, the heart would beat very slowly and just bobble around. The reason we have an organized heartbeat as we do is thanks to the pacemaker cells of the heart. And those coordinate and initiate the heartbeat. And there, you can envision them like a tremor that is giving the beat rate. Huh, and the okay. way it works is for them to send very small electrical signals that activate the heart cells. It's like an electric circuit. The rest of the heart is following that signal. Now, it's not quite that simple because there's not just one pacemaker in the heart. There is a sinoatrial node and an atrioventricular node. And short, you have, might have heard of them as SA node and AV node. And I haven't, yes. but now I know. <laughs> and the SA node is really the primary tremor that initiates a heartbeat. Well, the AV node follows that primary tremor, but it's really important because it connects your upper heart chambers with the bottom heart chambers. And if that connection is broken, you're not properly initiating the heartbeat and the pumping of blood. When pacemaker cells in the heart become damaged because of disease or old age, I imagine, what's typically on offer to patients for treatment? So the current standard of treatment for patients is the uh, implantation of an electronic pacemaker device. This electronic pacemaker consists of a battery pack that's get implanted into your chest. And then usually at least two or three leads that are inserted into your heart. And those leads are then taking over the electric activation of the heartbeat. There's about 200,000 Canadians have electronic pacemakers. What's life like for them? Do you, do you have a sense of that? First of all, an electronic pacemaker is great for these patients because it does save their lives. Because without the pacemaker, their heart would simply beat too slow. But on the other hand, an electronic pacemaker also comes with a couple of disadvantages. Those leads that I mentioned that inserted into the heart, they can get infected or dislocated. And then patients require surgeries. Uh, in addition, it's a battery-driven device, as I mentioned before, and these batteries need to be replaced every five to 10 years, which also requires a surgery. And now, if you think about pediatric patients, this all obviously becomes even more complicated because they do require multiple battery replacements throughout life. And in addition, these uh, leads of the pacemaker cannot really adapt to the growth of the heart in children. So they require additional surgeries to refit those leads. And last but not least, the pacemaker activates the um, electric activity of the heart differently than the natural pacemaker system. And that leads to a process that we call remodeling. In easy terms, what that means is that the heart changes its structure and function. 
And that can, in the long run, result in heart failure. And that's obviously something we would like to avoid. So this brings us to your research. And let me see if I have it right. You grow pacemaker cells in the lab, then implant them into the heart, and hopefully the heart accepts them, and they grow to regenerate the pacemaker function. So it works naturally. Do I have that right? Yes. In a nutshell, that's what we're doing. So that's the ideal. So first off, can I ask, how did you ever come up with this idea? The idea actually developed rather organically at the beginning of my postdoctoral fellowship in Dr. Gordon Kettler's lab here at UHN. I first initially joined his laboratory because um, of his expertise in stem cells and how to turn them into heart cells, because that's what I wanted to work on. And soon after I joined, I realized that we actually don't know yet how to turn a stem cell into a pacemaker cell. And obviously, these pacemaker cells, as I just told you, are pretty important for heart function. So that's where the idea of my project to generate pacemaker cells was really born. Let's start with the heart stem cell. You could just make it grow into a pacemaker cell. Sorry, I'm probably butchering this, but if you can explain that process. (sighs) Yeah. So we're actually using a very special starting material. That stem cell that we're using is a pluripotent stem cell. Pluripotent. What does that mean? So they are very unique because pluripotent means that this cell type has the potential to turn into any cell type of the body. I see. That's a little bit like magic. I agree. (laughs) Uh, But we can culture them in the Petri dish and can turn them, for example, into liver cells, blood cells, but also heart cells. So So how did you learn to coax this pluripotent heart stem cell into a pacemaker cell? We know how to do this from um, studying developmental biology, and that's not something I've done myself. That's decades of research by other scientists that use classical developmental models. And I found out the signals that are needed throughout development to turn an initial stem cell into a heart cell. That is something that might sound very simple, but it's in the lab to give you an idea. It's a process that took us about five years to figure out the protocol, how to turn the stem cell into a pacemaker cell. And that's the work that's been officially published for the first time in a first version at the end of my postdoctoral fellowship in 2017 on the journal Nature Biotechnology. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, this is purely in the lab in a Petri dish, correct? Yeah. Okay, now you have this ability to generate pacemaker cells, correct? Yeah. How do you test to see if they help a damaged heart where the pacemaker is not functioning properly? To test the functional ability of these pacemaker cells that we are making, we actually like to do this both in vitro in the Petri dish, where we generate them, but also in vivo with animal models. So in the Petri dish, we can test if they have a typical pacemaker character. For example, we check, do they express the correct genes? Are they expressing pacemaker genes? Do they have the appropriate electric activity? As I mentioned, they need to initiate this electric activity for the heartbeat. And we will also obviously check their beating rate. We can just look down the microscope and we can measure the contraction. For animal models, what we want to see is that these cells can actually engraft in the heart and connect with the host heart. And for this proper connection, what we need is for the pacemaker cells to electrically communicate with the host heart tissue, because that is required for them to play their role of being the drummer and to regulate the heartbeat. The exciting finding we had so far in a rodent model is that when we engrafted these cells, they did actually electrically connect and were able to regulate the heartbeat of the host. Wow. Okay. So this is simply a matter of you inject a bunch of these pacemaker cells 
and you wait to see if they take, so to speak, like I guess you're saying graft to the heart and then start to grow and work? Yeah, so it's basically two steps. If we look, if they take, we can just check, are these cells still there after a week or two weeks? But that doesn't tell us if they're functioning. So the, for the functioning, that's where the electric coupling is important. And there we have a pretty neat uh, way of telling because we can tell if these cells start to um, be the drummer. So we can literally have assays where we can see and look at the heart of the host and see, yes, our pacemaker cells are actually regulating the heartbeat now. So in these animal models, like how many cells does it take to inject into the heart? So we think that we need about 5 million cells for, actually, I'm jumping ahead here. That's what we believe we would need for humans. In the animal models, because we've used smaller rodent models, we only used about a million to 2 million uh, cells. And that's actually a really small cell, though, if you think of other cell therapies that people are trying to develop. Probably a lot of us have heard about the cell therapies for heart attack, where we're trying to replace damaged heart tissue. There we're looking at uh, making a billion cells, which is obviously a completely different challenge. So in these animal models, what are you finding? Like how, how are these injected cells doing? We're actually finding that they do engraft, that they uh, stay there. We're losing some, but that's very normal. Everybody's seeing that in the field. And then we do see that there's a pretty good success rate as well. About 85% of the engrafted cells do actually end up pacing the heart, which is pretty good success rate and obviously something we still want to improve because what we want is 100%. And any challenges yet or you know, dead ends or stumbling blocks so far? I think the biggest challenge we're facing is that our pacemaker cells are beating a little bit too fast. So as I mentioned, we are using this very special starting cell. And with that, the result is that the pacemaker cells we are making, they're what we call immature. And so they represent more the developmental status of a fetus or a newborn. And the heart of a newborn beats about 120 to 160 beats per minute. Mm. And this is exactly the speed that our cells are currently spontaneously beating at. And that's obviously a little bit too fast. If you think about your own resting heartbeat, that's about 60 beats per minute. So you really wouldn't necessarily want a pacemaker cell that's going that fast. So we're currently figuring out how to slow down those cells to make them more uh, amenable for human. Right. You're talking about an arrhythmia here? Uh, it's a bit different than an arrhythmia. I know that in general, if you think about a fast heartbeat, you think about arrhythmia. And plain speaking, it is an arrhythmia. And for an adult human, a heartbeat of 120 in rest would be too fast. So yes, that is something we have to overcome. So you were hinting at this earlier in terms of the number of cells you think it might take for humans. When do you know, Stephanie, you're ready for that next step to be able to take your research to try with humans? For that, obviously, we want to do proper testing in uh, additional models. And here we want to move to preclinical animal models. And the model of choice for us is the PIC because the PIC is used for cardiovascular tract testing in general. And that's because the heart is, of the PIC is very similar to the human heart. And what I personally want to see, and uh, which we haven't shown yet, is that these pacemaker cells can, in this pick, at least pace for a month. So that's one of the hurdles I want to overcome. And then to make sure that these cells don't show any adverse effects, like arrhythmias, as you just mentioned. So we got to somehow figure out to make sure that these pacemaker cells don't pace too fast. And if we achieve that, then we know we're a whole lot closer but before moving to any clinical trials, the other thing we definitely will be checking is that these cells do not induce any tumor formation because of the special starting cell we're using. That's a concern in the field, but it's also very common now that we will check in the heart, but also in the rest of the body 
that there's no tumor formation. So I don't mean to put you on the spot, but everybody always wants to know, okay, so when do you think you might see you're ready to take this to clinical trial? We started the pig studies and we're in the process of increasing the amount of animals we can do. So this is all still very new. I think Mm. in the next five years, we have some more answers and we need obviously to figure out how to slow it down a little bit. So that's to overcome this challenge. So I think before we can move to any clinical trials, it will be another good 10 years. Okay, fair enough. You mentioned when we talked before our interview, when we were preparing for this, that your lab is in its infancy, so to speak. You're, you're training your team. For those of us unfamiliar with this part of research, what are the challenges to a lab startup? We're actually just uh, up and running since two years. And it's actually a challenge, for example, to run those kind of preclinical studies as a startup lab. That's not really what you can pull off with a few people and just starting off a lab. I'll be honest, it's a, it's a stressful time, but it's also a very exciting time. So I really started from scratch. You have to fill the lab with equipment. Like nothing is there. You have to purchase the equipment, set it up, get it running. In parallel, you have to train your staff, as you mentioned. And I took the approach to start out with a technician, which I'm still very happy I decided to do so because she's now helping me just the everyday operation of the lab, purchasing and so on. But she's also my hands in the lab because I'm obviously getting more and more busy with sitting at the desk for crown writing, administrative stuff and meetings. So that was definitely a good decision. And we have now two graduate students that are part of the lab. And we're currently looking for a postdoctoral fellow to join us. So things are getting productive. And that's good because I think the biggest challenge everybody's facing starting a lab is to get that first publication out that has my name on (laughs) with a senior authorship. Yeah. Well, that's what I wanted to ask. I mean, you're so young yourself still, but would you have any wisdom or advice to pass on to young people who just entering the field in terms of lab startup? Mm, I think you got to find your own way. You got to do it the way you feel comfortable with. Don't look too much around what other people are doing. Listen to advices, but in the end, make your own decisions and learn to be confident. Find your inner voice. And I imagine this requires you seeking outside funding, like seed money from investors. How do you go about that? Because I'm guessing selling your work to convince people to invest in you was not likely part of your PhD training. Absolutely right. That's not part of your PhD training nor your postdoctoral fellowship. This is something you kind of have to learn as you go. So I'll take the one step at a time and learning as you go approach, really. I started with writing smaller grants, like public funding agencies, smaller grants, and then you slowly increase to writing the bigger five-year grants. And I highly recommend to reach out to mentors. So I was very fortunate having people helping me with the grant writings, giving advices. It's a learning curve. And yeah, you learn like you learn anything else in your uh, research career. Yeah, very key is to build up a network of mentors for that. And in addition to that government funding, the other funding source that our research field and especially the translation to the clinic depends on is industry funding. And that's even more complicated. That's something you're really not prepared for depending on where you're training. I was really fortunate that I was a postdoctoral fellow in Dr. Keller's lab and was able to witness the startup of Blue Rock Therapeutics here in Toronto, which was basically based out of the research of Dr. Keller and Dr. Michael Flam's lab. Do you, right. Jen? Blue Rock, yes. Yeah. And uh, I was also fortunate because I was a postdoc at the time that they supported parts of my own lab startup package. So now this comes as a benefit for my own trainees that they can actually experience industry-supported research 
and get exposed to this industry environment as a potential future career path because for not everybody's going to end up in academia and a lot of people in the future will probably move to industry. I've heard that uh, one sort of rule of thumb when you're approaching outside investors is you need to tell them a story to convince them to invest in you. Do you tell them a story? I think I, I'm not telling them a story. I like we usually do the way that we bring them to the lab and let the science speak for themselves and show them the exciting stuff we're doing. Uh, I think my personality is excitable enough that people get drawn into it. And then you show them the scientific facts as well. Telling a scientific story, I would like to call it. You're listening to Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at Toronto's University Health Network. Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote, and we're speaking with award-winning scientist, Dr. Stephanie Pratza, who is pioneering the production of pacemaker cells to regenerate damaged hearts and eliminate the need for electronic pacemakers. Her groundbreaking research is funded in part by the McEwen Stem Cell Institute and the Toronto General and Western Hospital Foundation. So Stephanie, we like to ask all our guests about their science origin story. And I understand for you, it goes back to a high school field trip to Dresden. You were born and raised in Perna, Germany, but you took a field trip to the Max Planck Institute, I understand. What was about that trip that sparked your connection to science? I really still have fond memories of that trip. To give you a bit more background, um, I was always fascinated by science. I enjoyed the science classes in school much more than German classes or English classes. So I chose biology as a major. And as part of that, we ended up doing this school trip to the Max Planck Institute um, that you mentioned to the next bigger city uh, in Dresden. And during that visit, I saw the axolotl for the first time. Which is? The axolotl is this amazing salamander that can regrow its entire limbs and parts of the body. Wow. Exactly. It sounds pretty science fiction, right? That's what I thought. I was like um, 16 years old. And uh, I was totally blown away by the research that the team there was doing. And this idea to, to work on something that, uh, you know, one day maybe we can apply to the human to regenerate organs. And I think that was really one of the key moments that hooked me to the wish of becoming a scientist and doing research myself for work. You then went on to actually do your PhD at the Max Planck Research School in Dresden, and you decide to uproot yourself and come all the way to Toronto for your postdoc. What's the story behind what drew you to Toronto? Yeah, that's totally correct. I was lucky to get a spot in the top PhD school uh, in Germany, which happened to be just next door, the Max Planck Institute, close to home. But once I finished my PhD in Germany, I knew that it's time to get out and explore science around the world. And at that point, all I knew was that I wanted to keep studying heart diseases and heart regeneration. I also knew that I would want to like to start working with these special stem cells, those pluripotent stem cells. And with that in mind, I applied to labs around the world, including the lab of the person who really spearheaded the research and still is leading the field, Dr. Gordon Keller, of turning those stem cells into heart cells. Dr. Gordon and Keller, he's in the McEwen Stem Cell Institute, correct? Exactly. The Dr. Gordon Keller here at UHN in Toronto. And when I got an email back from uh, Dr. Keller offering me a position in his lab, uh, I did not really have to think twice. And I packed my bags and came to Toronto. Okay. And we have to let everyone know here to make this journey halfway around the world, even more interesting, you had an added challenge, didn't you? Because your studies up to that point were in your native German. How did you manage a postdoctoral fellowship here in Toronto, and you had to learn a new language. 
absolutely English isn't my first language and moving to Canada, the English speaking uh, was an additional challenge. But luckily, during a career as a researcher, you get to slowly grow into that. So I still remember as an undergrad student when uh, we had to read original research papers in English. It took me like a whole afternoon to read one paper just to, to translate it and to understand what they are actually describing. My graduate studies, though, my PhD at the Max Planck Institute was already English speaking. And I think that was one advantage because I got to really slowly grow into it while I was still in Germany. And then obviously moving over to Canada kind of gave the final push and the full transition. Wow. All right. So you complete your postdoctoral fellowship under the leadership of Dr. Gordon Keller. I understand you're interviewing at places all over the world to begin your career and you decide to stay in Toronto. What was behind that decision? Yeah, there were a couple of factors that actually uh, led to that decision. I originally thought I would move back to Europe. That's how I started out looking for jobs. But then while I was traveling around the world, also in America, not just in Europe, for interviews for the faculty positions, I realized that Toronto was actually a perfect research environment. And to be honest, I took this for granted while I was postdocing. I didn't really look around. I wasn't really questioning it. But during the interviews, I noticed that hardly any other place really has this multitude of different research areas as Toronto can offer, which as a PI now gives me this exciting collaboration opportunities and supports that I can explore beyond my own research expertise through those collaborations. And another huge benefit I've found of Toronto and UHN itself are the research facilities. Again, I took them for granted while I was postdocing because they're really helpful for us as scientists to offer us all the latest technology that we would like to use without having to establish them ourselves in the lab. So I'm curious, what is this Toronto reputation with regard to stem cell study and, and innovation that you were starting to realize as you were doing your uh, interviews around the world? I think one thing that I was already aware of, I think most of you are aware of, is that uh, obviously stem cells were discovered in Toronto by Talen McCullough in the 60s while they were working with bone marrow stem cells. So Toronto has a strong stem cell reputation. And what it still has is amazing scientists working in the field of stem cells. While a lot has happened in the stem cell field, we're still leading edge scientists here in Toronto and they have the potential to deliver many new breakthroughs and also hopefully uh, clinical first in the next years. And I think that environment is something I decided I would like to stay in. The other big benefit that I forgot to mention about the reason why I decided to stay was not just the, uh, obviously the research environment, but there were actually two other factors I, I didn't mention. One is philanthropic support for research, which is something we actually don't do in Europe. This was very new to me when I came here, but throughout my postdoctoral fellowship, I was supported through philanthropic support from the McEwen Institute. And that was something that I could see how that helps running a lab. In Europe, that's really just not typically done. So that was another reason to stay in Toronto. And in addition, the idea to be able to work close with industry partners and startup companies, which is also something that seems to work a little bit better over the pond than it does in Europe. Well, we're lucky we were able to keep you. That's great. Your work is all lab-based. And I'm curious then, how do you stay connected to the needs of patients, that urgency in terms of the daily work you do? So I was always interested in doing translational research. I was never really drawn to the real, real basic science. I always wanted to do something where I can see that it can clearly help patients in the future. And in the end, I still trained as a basic scientist. 
And for that reason, I'm very aware that I have to um, reach out to clinician scientists uh, within the Institute and the McEwen Institute. We have clinician scientists uh, at UHN, obviously, and also around the world through collaborators uh, to discuss with them what is really needed from the patient perspective and to also realize what of the approaches we're using in the lab are more likely to be beneficial for patients or able to be translated to the clinic. And obviously working at a research hospital like UHN is definitely a huge benefit to stay connected to that. And yet the rigor of science, which we've heard about, you know, from you requires time. So how do you reconcile the need for new discoveries for patients with the time it takes for science to unfold? That is definitely something I'm struggling with a little bit, because as you might be able to tell, I'm not a very patient person and uh, science is definitely not moving fast. So I always try to remind myself that to make big achievements and to have real impact, it takes time. Like Rome wasn't built in a day. It's a very European saying, but that really fits to that. I also always try to make sure that when we communicate our research to the public, that we're not overestimating, that we're not overstating, because we want to make sure to be honest to ourselves, but also to future patients to be able to keep that scientific rigor. And when you hit a dead end in the lab, like when you have a, say, a, a failure, how do you navigate that? Having to deal with failure is a very important thing you've got to learn as a scientist. Obviously, we're trying new things and these things might work out, but they're just as likely to fail. So during my years of training, I learned how to see a failed experiment as part of the process. It is actually important to every now and then have a failed experiment to move on, to develop next steps and new ideas. Because I know that is an actual struggle, learning to handle failure. Now being a mentor myself, I'm trying to give that way of thinking to my students and to train them to accept failure as part of the scientific endeavor. And what's your advice to younger students? Like, how do you mentor them? <laughs> I think generally my biggest advice to them is that if you're excited about the work you do and you're motivated, you can achieve everything you want. And I know that sounds very idealistic, but I think it's my own experience. And I'm not telling them that it's going to be easy, nor that it will happen fast. But if they're not giving up and continuing to work hard, it's possible to achieve whatever dreams they have. Last year, you participated in an event called Science in the Six, where you and several other UHN researchers gave three-minute elevator pitches to a live audience. The premise of all this being to challenge you to be able to explain your research to a mass audience. What was that experience like for you? Oh, to be completely honest with you, I initially was hesitant to uh, participate in that because it sounds a little bit scary to get up there on a stage and try to explain your research in lay terms. But the team of the Toronto Western Foundation did a great job in helping us scientists and everyone in the team to, to explain the work we do in easy terms to make it exciting for the public. So in the end, it was a great event. I'm happy I did it. And I'm very happy that now it's out there for the public to watch. That's correct. It's on uh, the YouTube page, which we can put in our podcast package when we broadcast this. I'm curious, though, what's your take on the value of communicating what you do in a way that's accessible to a mainstream audience? I think to communicate what we do in the lab is more important than it ever has been. Like the times that science can hide behind the black curtain are, I think, really over. And obviously, because grant money comes from taxpayers' money. So in my mind, it makes total sense that we explain to the public what we're doing in the lab. And I'm actually hoping by reaching out and explaining it, we get them excited about it and actually more 
motivated or interested in uh, supporting research. That's great. So what drives you each day? What makes you think you can improve things? I think what gets me up and to the lab every morning is my curiosity for the unknown and this interest in scientific progress that I always had, even uh, back in school days. I think on the bigger picture, it's really this vision of being able to one day help patients and move what we're doing from the bench to the bedside and to improve a person's life that right now has heart rhythm disorders. So that decision several years ago to leave your homeland, what do you think of that decision today? I think when I had to, to make a decision to stay or take a position in Europe two years ago, I, I kind of made the final call on, I'm going to stay. I'm happy living in Canada. I'm happy with the environment provided here. And two years later now, I'm still happy. Even with all the complications that COVID has brought, it doesn't make it easy to communicate with family back in Europe. I'll admit that. But I'm trying to be optimistic that I can travel back more easily in the future because it obviously is always the idea it's easy to just go for a quick visit. But apart from that, I think I'm very confident that staying here was the right decision and is uh, supporting the career that I want to have and the progress I want to make with our research. So what's next for you? Right now, what's next for me is heading to the lab because every now and then I'm still getting my hands into the cell culture. And today is one of these days. On the bigger picture, I think the next goal is to really build a big enough research team that is able to actually test those biological pacemaker approaches that we have already in the pipeline and to move these preclinical studies ahead that I mentioned. And also to have a team that is able to develop additional new approaches to treat heart rhythm disorders in the future. Dr. Stephanie Pratza, award-winning scientist at UHN's McEwen Stem Cell Institute. Thanks for sharing your amazing work with us and continued success. Thank you very much, Christian. For more on the podcast, go to our website, www.behindthebreakthrough.ca and let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. Dr. Pratza's research is made possible in part thanks to generous donor support. If you'd like to contribute to this groundbreaking medical research, please go to www.tgwhf, that's tgwhf.ca forward slash podcast. That's a wrap for this edition of Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at the University Health Network in Toronto, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote. Thanks for listening. Thank you.